So the Bible, you know, you take a story, take a story like the prodigal. Amazing thing about the Bible is as you read it, certain stories as you read them, you realize that this is not simply a historical story set 2,000 years ago about a group of people or taught by a particular man in parable fashion. But at some point in reading scripture, you begin recognizing that this is really my story. I've said so many times about the creation story, the crea- what we call the creation story and the fall story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, as I moved away from biblical literalism, um, the traditional conservative evangelical view that has been so dominant the last 200 years, as I moved away from biblical literalism, often my friends would say, so you don't take the Bible seriously, which is really an underhanded pitch for a response, not a cutesy response, but... Um, Maybe it comes across as cliched, but I I mean it deeply when people say, well, you don't take the Bible seriously. And I often have retorted, oh, I I take the Bible more seriously than I've ever taken it. I take the Bible too seriously to read it through the lens of wooden-headed literalism, to read it as a book of science or a book of history. What damage is done to beautiful poetry by trying to read it like a dictionary or as prose? I've said quite often, you can take a botanical dictionary's definition of a rose and read it, and it's acutely accurate. Or you can take a poem from Wordsworth or Longfellow and read their words with what we would define as improper prosaic syntax, bad grammar, maybe even spelling off, and yet you read the poem about a rose and you smell the rose. So little by little, I have begun to recognize in the pages of Scripture not just stories written in ancient times, but my story, the Genesis 1, 2, and 3 story of creation and the fall. When people say, do you not believe in a literal Adam and Eve? Well, that's tricky, and I understand what they're saying. Uh, My faith is no longer dependent upon an archaeological dig somewhere in Mesopotamia that's going to turn up two people that you can prove they didn't have umbilical cords or belly buttons because they were created uh, ex utero or outside of the womb. I'm I'm not looking for a literal Eden or a literal Adam and Eve. And yet I take that story more seriously than I've ever taken the story because that story, literally, as you read it, you realize this is more accurate than a historical depiction of two people's lives. This is the spiritual journey of every human being that has ever lived. It's a story that was captured by many cultures before the Jewish culture captured it. That story of creation and the fall, a snake, a fruit the interruption of a perfect world, an Edenic climate-controlled atmosphere, that story of a cosmic war that spills over into a terrestrial realm and somehow human beings are caught in the crossfire of that cosmic war, that story predated our people by a 1,000 to 2,000 years. And yet our, our, our people conscripted that story a story that wasn't just indigenous to one group, was really indigenous to the entire human family. Groups of people who had never cross-pollinated on opposite sides of the earth were telling a very similar story. This doesn't make it less than true. It really 
tells us that there was a truth that was bubbling up through cultures and different mediums and religions. It was a story that had to be told. And when the Jewish ancestors got a hold of that story, um, we added innovation to that story, remarkable innovations to that story. I won't take time to go into all of those innovations, but suffice to say, when people say, do you not believe in a literal Adam and Eve, I always respond, I believe in 10 billion of them. A story like Joseph and his brothers, that story first started being told 3,500 to 3,800 years ago. It wasn't first told about a fellow named Joseph who was the grandson of the patriarch Abraham. That story uh, was in Sumeria. That story was found in northern Africa. It was a template. It was, there was an archetypical story of a brother betrayed, um, a favorite son. All of those things predated our telling of the story. And yet, our people conscripted that story and added layers to that story. And as I read it now, a story that we first started telling 28 to 2,900 years ago, at least in written form, maybe orally earlier, earlier, to think about a boy who was the favorite of his father, a boy who loved his older brothers, a boy who had many spiritual gifts but lacked spiritual wisdom, a boy who didn't understand that everybody's not as excited about your gifts as you are, a boy who didn't understand the psychology of what it meant to his older brothers that he was favored above them, a boy that was lowered by 10 older brothers down into a pit, thinking it was a joke, surely. And he looked up at that rim and he began to listen to them commiserate about how they were going to take his life. And nervous laughter turned to tears as he wept and reached upward through that abyss. Please. And then great relief came to him and it was a hellish relief when he heard one of his older brothers say there's no need to kill him here come Midianite slave traders now we might as well get something for him hauled up out of that well hoping against hope that it was all a bad joke only to be put in the back of a cart shipped off arms reaching through the bars of that cart screaming to his brothers please no listening to them devise a plan of how they would take his coat of many colors and in this sick, ironic twist of bitterness, dip it in animal's blood and lay it in the lap of this father who had wounded them by loving that boy more than them. To lay it in his lap with some sense of gratification. Anybody come from a dysfunctional family? To watch these brothers lay that coat in their father's lap and as the old man wailed and wept, they gave him no relief, but they said, surely it must have been that an animal tore your boy apart. He gets down into Egypt. Nine years he serves a guy named Potiphar, faithfully, honorably. Potiphar's wife gets the hots for him. Multiple times she tries to pull this virile young man into an affair over and over again. He loves his God, his master Potiphar, and his own integrity too much, and he refuses her. Resist all of his urges. Finally, one day, this woman is bitter at him, and as she tries to tempt him and lure him into her bed, when he spurns her attempts, 
this final time, she screams, tears his coat off, and when the servants rush into the room, she points her finger and says, he tried to rape me. This man that he had served so faithfully comes into the room, looks at him as though he is betrayed by his own son, sends him off to prison, and he lays in that prison cell, the story said, and he rolls over for years. Almost a decade he lays in that prison, almost like a rotisserie chicken, just stewing and turning, basting in the fire of injustice and bitterness and regret and anger. And he thinks to himself, if I ever get my hands on those brothers of mine. <laughs> and then through a supernatural turn of events, he's whisked out of the prison of... Oh. The psychological inertia must have created such a whiplash in his soul because he goes from being in that prison to being the second most important man in Egypt. And in that position is vice viceroy, vice pharaoh of all of Egypt. He still now has been separated. He's about 38, 39 years old. He hadn't seen his parents since he was 17. He knows that they think he's dead. He's living, gosh, 120 miles away and he's tried to put this story behind him. And one day the servants come in and says, your wife has had a baby. What do you want us to name him? And he said, call him Ephraim. For Ephraim meant the Lord has made me prosper in the land of the adversity, of my adversity. A couple years later, he has another baby. He said, call him Manasseh. And the people thought that was so strange because Manasseh at the time was not a proper name. Manasseh meant forgetting. And when they said, your second little boy has been born, he looks out the window and he remembers a pit and a well and a prison and injustice and pain and brothers and a dad he misses so desperately and a mother who loved him so dear and a younger brother that he wonders what he looks like now. And he says, call my boy forgetting. Call him Manasseh, call him forgetting for the Lord has made me forget all the sorrow of my father's house. And 2,900 years ago, somebody told a story that made it clear that divine forgetting is not the erasure of memory. Divine forgetting, Michael, is the capacity to remember the event without feeling the sting. Divine forgetting is not the inability to recall the event but divine forgetting is after you've rolled over in that prison of regret and bitterness and resentment so long and you grind your teeth just waiting for that moment. But it was so beautiful the way he said it. He said, the Lord has made me forget. There are hurts and wounds too large in life and Joseph reminds us that there are times we cannot forgive, we cannot forget, the pain is too deep. All we can possibly do is just not want to be one more bitter person who ends up wasting their life away, drying their soul up, their bones bitter to the core, and all we can do is just lay our heart open and say the wound is too large, but God, if there is anything you can possibly do with a heart like mine, would you do it? And Jennifer, somehow years later, he stands 
stands before his brothers, and when they quake and shake for fear that he's going to destroy them, he looks at them, stretches out his arms, Chris, and says, come to me. Do not be hard on yourself. Let yourself off the hook. What you did to me and meant for evil, the Lord has superintended for good. The Lord has even sent me here through your evil deed to preserve a posterity for you and your children. Somehow God loved you enough that he took the worst thing you could ever do to someone and redemptively used it to save you and your children's life. Somewhere in that prison cell, Joseph said, somewhere a divine process of forgetting began to relieve him of bitterness. Somewhere, Joseph said, I was able to realize that that God doesn't just work on the heart of the one who needs to forgive, God works on the other end too. I wasn't the only one laying down here in this prison dying a thousand deaths because of the wound. Evidently, there were some brothers who couldn't forget what they had done to me, and they were dying a thousand deaths too. Amazing, Jason. God's not just working in my heart to forgive them. God's working in their heart. 2,900 years ago, you watch Joseph when he reveals himself to those brothers, and he says, everybody out. And he sends all of those who attend to him in that Egyptian court. Jeff, he sends all of them out. And I watch him send all of them out. I mean, this is a moment filled with pathos when a brother who was betrayed 20 years before is about to reveal himself as the one who was betrayed. This is an incredible moment. These brothers are going to be horrified. And before he reveals himself, he looks around at everybody else Matt, and he says, Ted, he says, everybody out of here. And 2,900 years ago, wisdom literature knew that when you're tending to deep wounds between you and someone, nobody needs to be in the room except you and them. There are moments, it's not, it's not about talking to anybody else. Nobody needs to witness it. It's the reason Jesus looked at his disciples and said, go into town and get some food. And when they came back, he said, I don't want it. I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they're like, well, why didn't you send us into town? Oh, I don't know. Because when he sent them into town, about that time a woman showed up who had been married five times, was living with a guy, and her life was falling apart. And Jesus knew that it was going to be hard enough to talk to her about the embarrassment, the reproach, the brokenness of her life. It's going to be hard enough in isolation much less with 12 men looking over her shoulder. That's why when they caught a woman in the act of adultery, Jesus understood how much spiritual voyeurism there is in the church, how much shock and awe there is in the church, how much condescension there is in the church. So the Bible says when they did what they do to women caught in the act of adultery, which was they drug them out of the bed and they didn't let them put their clothes on. And if they did have some clothes on, they would at least strip them to the waist to shame them. And that's why the Bible says when they brought that woman stripped to the waist or maybe even unclothed, when they brought her into the crowd, the Bible says Jesus wrote in the sand. You know, if it would have been important what he wrote, the Bible would have told us, right? The Bible didn't tell us what he wrote. The Bible tells us that he wrote. So all I know is that to write in the sand, you had to look down. Jesus took one pair of eyes off of her because shame never corrects. Condemnation never corrects. And so when Jesus saw the woman coming, he did the most decent thing he could possibly do. He looked down. And Joseph said, everybody out. I'm about to reveal to these guys how sorry they are. And nobody, nobody needs an audience when that moment happens. Because love covers a multitude of sin. 
Hatred stirs up wrath. See, all this stuff, Scripture. The problem so many of us had with the Bible is we, we grew up with a book that is sharp and incisive. And I'll tell you about sharp, incisive tools. They can be used... They can be used as butcher knives in the hand of murderers, or the same tool can be used as a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon. The same sharpness can cut surgically and healingly or torturously, depending on if, the, if it's the hand of Hannibal Lecter or Jesus. The same scalpel is completely dependent upon the hand of the one that it's in. And when you take a sharp, incisive, very human book, raw book, that spares no detail when it describes the frailties of human beings, when it lets them bleed onto the page their own misgivings and vitriol and project their own shortcomings onto the page, uh, there's no amount of damage that can be done with a book like that in wrong hands with wrong motives and improper insight. We've talked about this before, but you know, when you talk about the sharpness of that book, the precise razor edge sharpness of that book, I instantly think of stories like Numbers 34, where God has a man named Moses, and as we're wrestling right now with um, extreme radicalism, especially in the religion of Islam. And I always remind us, Islam is about 1,300 years old as a religion. Religions develop in a macro sense. They develop sociologically over time. So, Sarah, if Islam is 1,300 years old, I think about Christianity, we're 2,000 years old, we're 700 years older than Islam. What were we doing at age 1,300? Anybody go back to the 13th and 14th century? Crusades. Inquisitions. We were acting just like them. Now, there should be a bit more of a comeuppance for them because they're set in a setting where they have the advantage of history. And I will say they are, as a religion, doing better because their percentages of radicalism at 1,300 years old are smaller than ours. Ours was from the top down. Theirs is on the fringes. So religions develop over, over time. And, and, and yet, uh, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, I can't even remember what the documentary was, but I watched a documentary some time ago where scriptures from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament that we hold so dear as sacred text, people were on, the, uh, an interviewer was on the street reading this text to people, telling them it was from the Koran, and, and Christian people like us were just aghast at how these texts could be so awful and how Islam just needed to be stamped out until they finally were acquainted with the idea this wasn't from the Koran, this was from our book. Numbers 34, God looks at Moses and says, I want you to go kill all those Midianites. It's called genocide. I mean, it's what happened in Armenia in the 1920s and what happened in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. It's to wipe out, it's, it's what Stalin did to 20 million people. It's to wipe out a group of people because somehow you deem them less than human. And we have this book, Numbers 34, where God tells Moses, go kill these people. Moses tells the people, God said, go kill them. So the people go and kill all of these people. And when they come back, 
Moses puts his hands on his hips and says, you didn't kill them all. And the people said, my God, of course we didn't. We couldn't bring ourselves to kill the children and the old people. Read Numbers 34 sometime. God said, I told you to kill them all. And the people, having that pang of conscience, Michael said, we can't do it. God said, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it to you. They said, okay, we'll go do it. And begrudgingly, they turned around and, and Herb, they headed to kill all the old people and the kids. And as they turned around to kill all the old people and kids, Jeff, God said, wait a minute, you don't have to do that. And the people are like, oh, thank God. And Moses says, God's going to give you a reprieve. You don't have to kill them all. You can keep the young girls who are virgins for yourself, your own private stock. That's Yahweh. That's Jehovah, Mandy. Ooh, that's a tough book. I remember one time I was teaching a, a, a class at Vanderbilt Divinity and a young girl that had been raised Baptist, now a young crusader against Christianity. I don't know what she was doing at Divinity School, but she stood up and she screamed in the middle of my class on systematic theology. She screamed, Mein Kampf! Hitler's biography. Mein Kampf, she said. I was like, excuse me? She said, this book is no better than Mein Kampf. And she stood up and she began reading texts like that. And I gave her space to. What do you do with texts like that? I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't make them the word of God. Because I can guarantee you God hadn't ever told anybody to kill anybody, nor has God ever told anybody to keep young virgin girls for their own private stock. If that is who God is, then we would all be better off atheists. Can you say Amen. As Anne Lamott said, if that is who God turns out to be and he or she decides to let me in, I hope I have the you-know-whats to pick it outside the gate <laughs> and not go in. But that's not God. So what do you do with the sharpness, the edge of a story like that? Well, you hear Jesus come along. He was a good Jew, and he had texts just like that. He was raised, reared, Sandy, on those texts. Those were his texts. And he came along, he came to this earth. We talked about Jesus last week. Jesus came to this earth and he took the Bible very seriously. And he said this about the Bible. He said, these stories, stories like Numbers 34, stories like Gosh, I remember the first time I ever read the story of the flood to Stan Jr. He was about six years old, and we're reading the story. And, you know, I'm thinking, isn't it crazy? We take a story about the flood. You do realize that story is a story of all the babies in the world getting drowned, right? Is it crazy that we take that story and make it our nursery motifs in church? I mean, think about it. We, our nurseries in church are, you know, this big boat and hippopotamus and giraffes leaning over the side smiling. We take one of the worst stories in the history of humankind when God killed everybody on earth except eight people. And we make that the nursery motif. I do think this, one day when we get our own place again, I think a great scripture for a nursery would be 1 Corinthians 15. Right above our nursery door, it should, 1 Corinthians 15, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. Wouldn't that be good? That's a good uh, nursery scripture. That may be proof texting, but I think it works. We shall not all sleep, we shall be changed. 
I'm reading this story to Stan Jr. and I'm thinking about the hippopotamus and the giraffe and the aardvark and all the happy animals. I get to the end of the story and the longer I read it, the more disconcerted I am. I'm like, this is awful. I close the Bible, no commentary. I lay back, we're lying there a little bit. He's six years old and my, my boy, Chris, he said, so he killed them all? I said, yeah. He said, you mean he drowned them? That's what the story said. I'll never forget Glenn Stan Jr. He's six. He said, I don't believe it. Because I had taught him that Jesus was God. And the only Jesus he knew was the guy who pulled children into his lap and said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if anybody would do anything to harm one of these little ones, it would, it, it would just be better for them to go jump off in the deepest ocean. He knew the Jesus that pulled children into his lap. And this is good theology. He read a text in the Old Testament, and before he knew what it meant, he knew what it couldn't mean. Now, that's good theology. Because we, this is what Christianity does, our hermeneutic key, our, where we cross the y-axis of the development of ideas, that X passing of time, we cross the y-axis, and that zero, zero point is named Jesus for us. And Jesus said, I want to show you what God looks like. And he pulled children into his lap and said, no one should ever harm them. Now, my little boy was doing good theology that night because he had no idea what that text meant, but he absolutely knew what it couldn't mean. And so we start with the person of Jesus Christ and we read scripture through the lens of Jesus. You say, well, through the lens of Jesus, and you've heard me talk about this before with the help of my friend Greg Boyd, who's a great theologian. With the help of Jesus, how do you read a story? Read Numbers 34 through the lens of Jesus. Well, it's very possible. Genocide, the rape and pillage of little adolescent girls, how do you read that through the lens of Jesus and reconcile that? Well, among the many things Jesus is, we believe Jesus is a sin bearer. Now, we're not so much into the atonement theology that says there is a wrath of God that needs curtailed and somebody has to die to assuage that wrath, and yet we do believe in atonement because atonement simply means at one moment, solidarity. God comes into the human family, and I'm not at all bothered by the idea of us needing a sin bearer because I think sin is a real issue. Um, I think our brokenness does manifest, and we do miss the mark, and we do hurt one another, and we do hurt ourselves. Whatever you want to call that, um, sin's not a bad word if you're pointing to the brokenness of humanity. You believe in sin, Jeff? It, it hurts. Um, Jesus is a sin bearer. 2 Corinthians 5 said, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God. 
Now, I do believe Jesus was more than this, but people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Solzhenitsyn or Mandela, I was just showing somebody a picture today of when I was in uh, South Africa, standing up, looking out into the ocean. There was that island where Mandela was for 28 years. Great martyrs are sin bearers. They, they take the sins of humanity upon themselves and they bleed out redemptively on the balcony of little hotels called the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. And somehow 40, 50 years later, we turn those into museums. And just a few months ago, I was there watching kindergarten children get off a bus and watching a hundred little kindergarten children walk up, Linda, over that spot and I watched them stand there as a teacher tried to present a story for the minds of five and six-year-old children about a man who had kids their age and he died right here. He was a sin bearer. And Jesus was a sin bearer. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So what do we see? Jesus read Numbers 34 and he heard God supposedly say, go kill all of these people. Jesus read that and Jesus said, that scripture testifies of me. Well, how in the world does that scripture testify of Jesus? Well, Jesus, our story goes, and I think it's a profoundly real theological um, story uh, with profound theological implications. Jesus didn't commit sin, he bore sin. So when Jesus is on the cross and he screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sins of the world, everything from Manson to Hitler to me. When all of that is borne by him and he, like the scapegoat, is sent into the wilderness and we are screaming, run, goat, run, take our sins away from us. The priests are laying their hands on the head of that sacrificed animal and we're transferring our sin. Jesus became sin the sinless one became sin for us. So Jesus was a picture of God and the greatest picture of God that Jesus ever was was in his greatest expression of love which was greater love hath no man than this than he laid down his life for a friend and scarcely for a friend would any of us do it but Jesus even did it while people were enemies. While we were resisting and against him Jesus died for us. So hereby perceive we the love of God. 1 John 3, 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Not that we loved him, but that he has loved us and has laid down his life for us. So Jesus could look at Numbers 34 and Jesus could look at the ark story. And this is what I can tell Stan Jr. who loved Jesus and still does. I mean, he's at... 19 year old now he's not sure he's a Christian but he still is enamored with the life of Jesus and that bodes well for his future but I could tell him okay so here's what's happening in that Old Testament story it's the same thing that happened to Jesus on the cross he didn't commit those sins he bore them and in the Old Testament God isn't committing these sins God is bearing them the Old Testament and stories like that, Josh, it's a literary crucifixion of God. 
It's what humans do. We take the worst of ourselves that we cannot bear and we project it onto the divine. We, we want to make God, you know, the God of our country, the God of our cause, the God, the God that's on our side. And so we, as Pascal said, and then George Bernard Shaw famously quoted, God made humankind in God's image, and we have returned the favor. So what you're reading in Numbers 34, this is why to call the Bible the Word of God as though these are final propositional truths that indicate who God is, is a tragedy. The Bible is actually the spiritual travel diary of our ancestors, a group of people who for thousands of years have been wrestling with who God is and who they are, and we get that poured onto the pages of a book that we can enter into, not because it always gives us the final answer, but because it leads us to ask the right questions. And we're drawn into that book. And we see not only the beauty of God, but on the marred face of Jesus, holy mackerel, this was God in flesh, on the marred face of Jesus, we see the worst that humanity can be, and God is able to bear it in love. So just as the cross was a physical crucifixion, the Old Testament and stories like that are literary crucifixions, and they tell us a whole lot more about ourselves than they tell us about God. So, I didn't explain that to a six-year-old, but the beauty is I didn't, had to, I didn't have to because without words, he already intuited something like that was true. So for post-evangelicals like us, former Catholics, people that come from traditional backgrounds, I'm telling you, the bulk of us over the last 200 years no longer read the Bible and no longer go to church. Because there is such an association with the negative ways the Bible was used, church was used, most people, this first wave out of conservative Christianity ends up nowhere connected to church. I can't tell you how many people I run into in this town who absolutely identify with us, but they just can't come back. They can't figure out a way to redeem the book, to redeem the songs, to redeem the Eucharist, to redeem baptism. And that's what we're doing. We're coming back and we realize that it would be very easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the problem is the baby in this bathwater, no matter how dirty this bathwater is, and it gets pretty dirty, the baby in this bathwater was one laid in a manger and this baby is profound enough that we need to sort through a lot of bathwater before we decide to throw him away. And not only have I found God redeemed and Jesus redeemed and church redeemed and songs redeemed, but for me, the Bible has been redeemed. And I, it's not just because it's vocational for me. I love this book more than I've ever loved this book in my life. And I love, that's why I love this church. I love Midrash. I love Wednesday night because we get the book out. And most of us don't read the book anymore at home. But we are being reacquainted with the book. And through the lens of Jesus, we're realizing this book is not Mein Kampf. It actually is a marvelous travel diary of our journey and our story. So that's the way we look at the Bible. And that, for me, is a high view of Scripture. People say, well, we, you don't have a, liberals don't have a high view of Scripture. I think I have a higher view of Scripture. I have such a high view of Scripture, Butch, I want to read the book right. I have a sense that even when I wanted to let go of it, it wouldn't let go of me. These stories, wow, these stories, I could tell you a hundred right now. But 
you know, a young man loses his way. He was, uh, he was on staff at Grace Point. How many years ago? He was our worship leader. He, before Melissa, before Roger, back then, he was our worship leader and just lost his way. It's still, it's hard for him to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine. Lost his way. But stories, God, how many of those stories, that prodigal story, how many of those stories mattered to you in those days? Thy word, I remember my grandmother, when she was really wrestling dementia, at the last of her life, she wanted to go to church. Her favorite scripture was, um, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. We would take my grandma to the church. She couldn't sit up anymore. She was almost like a baby, and we would lay her on the back row, right? Where you're sitting, Linda, we would lay her on the back row. She would lay on the back row, and you wouldn't know she was there, but every now and then somebody would be singing something, and you'd see her hand go up <laughs> between the pews. And whenever I would start quoting Scripture or the preacher starts quoting Scripture, whoever was sitting around her, she'd quote the Scripture. And she would quote chapters. And I remember asking somebody, I said, I don't know how she does that. I mean, she, she not only forgot us, she forgot who she was. And I don't know if this is scientifically, physiologically correct, but it makes sense to me. I was talking to somebody, Jeff, and I said, I don't know how she does it. She's forgotten everything in the world but all the Bible verses. And whoever it was, it wasn't a preacher. I can't remember who it was, but they said, well, it makes sense to me because the psalmist said, thy word, O Lord, have I hidden my heart. And Alzheimer's and dementia may affect the brain, but it hasn't got to her heart. She hid that somewhere beyond the gray matter, down in the depth of her soul. And those scriptures, those scriptures are life. So there's my take on the Bible. That may not be the most erudite intellectual thing you've ever heard, but can you feel what I'm trying to say? Isn't that the way you feel? Even when we wanted to let go of it, it wouldn't let go of us. So any comments or, sorry, I, I talked a little bit too long. That is so strange. I don't normally do that. <laughs> oh, y'all offend me by laughing so hard at that. Um, any comments or thoughts about that or ways of wrapping this up? Anybody? Sure, Jess? <laughs> yeah, somebody take the microphone away from Jessica. <laughs> okay, is she on? God committed sin. Yeah, the point that I was trying to make, but you addle me now, is that God did not commit those egregious acts, but an idol, a group of people called God, was said to commit those acts, but those acts were actually the acts of people. When somebody blows themselves up and 
calls the name of God while they're flying the plane into the building, that is not a real God. That is an idol made in the image of our own hatred and vitriol. So I don't think it's indicative of God. So God's not bearing God's sins. And yet, maybe God is because to some degree, you do feel in the divine heart a sense of responsibility for human sin because guess who created us? And in Genesis 6, before the flood story, there's this, um, there's this statement from God that has a ring of essential truth to it that I can't quite fully wrap my mind around, but God said, I am sorry I made humankind on the earth. I will destroy them. I used to read that. God said, I'm sorry I made those suckers. I'm going to destroy them all. I remember I had a veterinary friend and I had a German shepherd that lost her mind. She literally lost her mind. She was my baby. She was just my best friend, but she lost her mind, had nervous breakdown. It happens to dogs and she could not repair. And she became just the most devastated creature. And I remember one day I prayed and said, God, if you'll give me the strength, I, need to, I know what I need to do. And I put her in the car and I started driving and she was just pitiful, whimpering, crying all the time. And I drove her to my vet. I remember when I got there to the vet's office, my buddy came out and said, are you sure you want to destroy her? And I, I remember that word. They call it, you know, vets in the old days, they called it destroying a dog. And it hit me. Genesis 6, God said, I'm sorry I made them. I will destroy them. This was not an angry destruction. This was a God taking responsibility for how poorly things had turned out. I will destroy them and put them out of their misery. And yet instead of going that route, God went the redemptive route and believed that there was still something worthwhile here. It's profound. This is the use of Scripture. Others, anybody else want to say something? A comment. Do you love the Bible? How many of you would be honest and say, I have never really spent a lot of time in my private life reading that book? Yeah, that's most Christians. Most Christians are there. There's nothing to be ashamed of about that. And churches who don't admit that and give people formats like Wednesday Night Midrash to actually come back around and see it differently, I think are making a tragic mistake. Because when people say, well, anybody can read it, that's not true. I, I appreciate that Luther fought for the perspicuity of Scripture and to get it out of the hands of professionals into the hands of what he called the plowboy. But I'll tell you this, there is a balance there because this book... It is a dangerous book. It is a complicated book. And to act like it's simple math, it's not. It's like giving a five-year-old, starting a five-year-old with a book on differential equations. Differential equations is math, but it is not where you start with math. And so to give somebody a book and just say, start in Genesis and read through, no, 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 no. People need, our children need to sit down with Jesus and we need to develop the lens of Jesus and work out from there carefully because it is a complicated book of spiritual calculus and it can be damaging in the hands of people. And maybe the worst damage is not that we do horrible things with it. Maybe the worst damage is that we get so overwhelmed by the calculus of it, most people end up doing what most of you have done, and that's just put it away and say the spiritual mathematicians are going to take care of it. So that's, that's the real tragedy. So we love the book around here. 
And if you want to learn more about it, come out to Midrash. It's a really, isn't it? It's just a great time where we sit around and really dig into this book. All right, we need to take an offering to pay the rent around here. Offering the last two weeks has sucked, so please give a little bit more tonight. And did I say that right? Did I get that? Did y'all get my point? Okay, so give a little extra, and then we'll go home.